As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. And welcome to the VanCast, Farhan Lalji and Thomas Dranson. Before we continue to break down the latest with the Vancouver Canucks and their preseason, who's coming, who's going, we do want to recognize the fact that this is the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And for myself, I'm broadcasting on the territorial grounds of the Sumas and Matsqui First Nations. And Tom, it's really important that collectively we all recognize what was a very difficult part of this country's history that's been ignored for far too long, everything that went on with the residential schools and really where we were as a nation before we began as a nation. Yeah, and you know, I think it's important to do as the Canucks did on Monday and call it for what it is, genocide. Um, of course, I'm recording from the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and tsleil nations in Vancouver here. And, you know, I do hope that people are able to spend today reflecting on, you know, a dark and too often unacknowledged side of our country's history, you know, our role on this land as settlers, and what we can begin to do to chart a healing path forward for our entire country. Yeah, and education and acknowledgement really is front and center in all of that, and really what we've gone through for the last few years as this country's come to an awakening, and then certainly now with the first ever national holiday for truth and reconciliation, I think it's a good time to reflect and continue in that process. And for us, we're going to talk about something far less important, and that's sports. But I'll tell you this as we segue, something far more important than the Vancouver Canucks, and that is, who is BC's team, Thomas Strance, when it comes to Major League Baseball? Because I submit to you and your Toronto background that it is the Seattle Mariners. Don't yeah, tell I me mean, who the better team I, is. Not interested. No, I'm, sure, I'm sure one in five people agree with you. I mean, this is a Blue Jays town. This is not a Mariners. Listen, town. I like, see you with your Blue Jays. I see you with your Blue Jays hats when you come to the ring. But I'll tell you this: <laughs> I grew up 
when it was more of a Mariner town than it was a Blue Jays town. And, I, and I'll say this, when I worked for the first time at TSN, and, and this was post-Blue Jays World Series titles, okay? The television ratings on Sportsnet, which at the time professed to be a regional network, and they actually cared about airing Mariner games. Now, they certainly didn't promote it because they were owned by Rogers and it was all about promoting the Blue Jays, but they did air Mariner games. Their television ratings back in the mid and late 90s were actually higher for Mariner games in this market than they were for Blue Jay games. Not significantly higher. It was close. They were in the same talking point, same discussion area, but this was a legitimate discussion. And I think it's difficult to have the a discussion now. A generation ago. Like, sure, are you but, telling me that the ma- ratings for the team that had Ken Griffey Jr. and Randy Johnson and Edgar Martinez were good? No kidding. Alex Rodriguez, like one of the most stacked teams of the last 30 years, people wanted to watch them play baseball. Shocking. But That's so what we're talking about is this is a baseball, this is a baseball <laughs> argument and a regional argument as much as it is a historical argument, right? So the, the truth One is, of the is worst in, franchises yes, all of the true. past 25 years. All true. Trash. 100%. And no team has ever made the MLB postseason with a run differential as bad as the Mariners is right now. Na- minus 48. I am it's not here to debate before. to you at it's not all. not going to happen I, this week. I'm not here to debate to you at all. Why does anyone want to see a trash team and a trash mismanaged franchise be rewarded by like the gods of absolute fluky sports nonsense because that is sport and that's the best part about sport and that team that first made the american league playoffs and they refused to lose that people in the pacific northwest remember so fondly even with that stacked team other than ken griffey jr we didn't know how stacked they were till they finally did it till there was a historical perspective on how good that team was yeah they had randy johnson and they had a rod a young a rod but it took a team that captured that market and went on a historical run much like this team is doing winning 10 of their last 11 and having the best record in the american league since august 10th that's fun that's what sport is about that's when we fall in love that franchise was on the verge of moving from seattle because nobody ever even contemplated a new stadium but that team got people so excited about it that we have a fantastic stadium and yes it's sad what's happened to them and they've been awful but everybody (laughs) in that region has gone back on the bandwagon even people that weren't for me i've always kind of side-eyed baseball because i have no interest in it generally other than the fact that i hate the toronto blue jays but i always side-eye it and now we're in september and now i'm going to look at it with both eyes and i'm going to hope that i can jump on the bandwagon and when they're good bad or indifferent if they get in and knock the blue jays out hell yeah (laughs) <laughs> well, you and the contrarian 20% of the city that but, just lives to loathe Toronto sports. But you're talking about the contrarian part. Let's compare compare this as a real fair argument because you want to talk about what's in our history and what's in our blood. And if we hadn't been force-fed the Toronto agenda every time they remotely get oh. into the playoffs, and we do because the coverage completely holds us hostage if you're into watching all sports television. Okay, it does. So it's a free commercial all the way through that the Seattle Mariners won't be fortunate enough to get. And you have to acknowledge that because that's real. And on top of that, it's been a bad team. It's been a bad team and a bad franchise. So if you if you make it an apples to apples argument, we have a chance to say 
the Seattle Mariners matter as much or more because we see how much we care no, they don't. about the Seattle Seahawks. But as No one cares about the Mariners because they're trash. Yeah, but you're they've missing my point. They've been trash for a long time. So they've, they've People care them. about the Blue Jays, Farhan, because they've done an excellent job marketing in this region. And by the way, because they're owned by the television that, station. No, stop they're that. They're owned stop by the that. television station. There's no stop, stop that. Stop taking credit ad. away. Stop taking credit away from the excellent work of the Vancouver Canadians organization over the last 10 years, building a really fun ballpark experience. But they did and before. Deepening those ties. Yeah, but I grew up at Nat Bailey. And whether the Oakland A's. What are you talking about? The Nats, the Nats sat half empty. In 2009. It was a great place to go in the summer. It was a triple-A franchise. And people didn't go. Blue- That's not true. I mean, there were like times, there were times the when they were the Angels affiliate. place to go to. In the late 90s, when you had a point. But for 10 years, between, you know, like the late 90s and the purchase by the Blue Jays, it was not what it be has been and has become again over the last 12 years for him. Yeah, but we also like the went Blue through some ups and downs of the level of baseball they played at. You can't give full credit for all of this man. to the Vancouver Canadians. You can't on, also Can- give full credit to this for like the propaganda machine when a big part of it's that the Blue Jays have been super entertaining and have had a ton of key players that have Vancouver Canadians ties be big contributors in huge moments. Things like, you know, the bat flip, the the wild card walk-off home run by Edwin. Like, the Blue Jays have had moments of resonance in this market, moments that were tied to the Vancouver sports scene. Like, the propaganda machine wouldn't matter if you were selling trash like what you've seen in Seattle. But you sold trash up until about five years ago in Toronto. Right, like they got relevant again five to six years ago, but their run was horrific yeah. for a long period of time to the point where even in their own market, people lost interest, much like you would expect them to do when they were trash. And I think you're totally overplaying the Vancouver Canadians element of it. No, because it, the, people don't follow player ties. X all the way through. We don't have that many baseball fans in this market, right? Like we, we have not to what, that We don't degree. have that many Mariners fans sure, in this market, base, but there's a fair few Blue Jays either. fans. The Blue Jays Jays also, this Blue Jays team, absolute juggernaut, going to be super relevant in an MLB context for years to come. This Mariners team, you know, the things they do well result in the PDO of 106. Like, who cares? Maybe they sneak in and get smoked by the Red Sox. They've got no real shot. I'm happy that the, you know, 200 really loud Mariners fans in this market get to stick their chest out. For a team that's just absolutely garbage. Um, Best record but, in the American League since let's August not 10th. Pretend, let's not pretend there's any comparison, regardless of how this week turns out, between what they are and what the Blue Jays are. Not just in the hearts of fans in this market, but in terms of the actual quality of their team. The hearts of, of Blue Jay fans in this market, they're much the same. They were nowhere to be found until five years ago. And then they decided to jump back on the bandwagon because it got relevant again. As opposed to you and your Mariners support. (laughs) Yes. I'm guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. And that's the point. I know. I have no problem with bandwagon jumping far. And that's what Toronto fans have done in the last five years, because for 15 years, they were equal trash. So (laughs) you're totally overplaying the, 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 Canadians always do a great job. 
So the Blue Jays, they're, they're hidden, and now they'll come out because they're relevant again, and they're entertaining. And, and from a talent perspective, they're better. And look at the Seattle. They're like the youngest team in the American League right now. They are young, and they're going to get better. And I couldn't sit here and defend it because I don't know enough about baseball, and I don't give a damn. But for the amount that I will care, I'm all on Team Mariner. <laughs> well, enjoy it. I mean, look, it's going to be a fun three days. And what's more fun than, you know, four teams in the mix, like the Yankees and the Red Sox, the two most public teams in the sport, and then the Mariners and the Blue Jays. This is like excellent for any Vancouver baseball fan. Like this week is as good as it gets for, for Vancouver baseball fans. So enjoy it and talk trash and make fun of the fact that you have like two friends that pretend they're Mariner fans and have really just come out of the woodwork now calling you a bandwagon fan because you weren't like watching 80 Blue Jays games a year in 2013. Were you really watching (laughs) 80 Blue Jays games in 2013? Oh, dude, I used to have the Toronto Star card when I was like in university all through. And uh, it was like 120 bucks for the year. And you could go to every game. It was like season's tickets, so long as the game wasn't sold out, which no game was ever sold out, except Canada Day, maybe opening day. And so... Because they were yeah, so I bad. Went to a, a tons of Blue Jays games. Well, you know yeah, what? They were so as bad. a guy that is great. so into numbers and analytics, like baseball is is meant for you, right? So that's... I, I totally appreciate your appreciation for it. For yeah, me, I used to cover it, it right? So I used to actually, back then when I was your age, because that did happen at one point... I used to watch all the Mariner games. So, you know, like I had a good buddy of mine that I coached football with and we were uh, we were big into it, right? So in the 90s and early 2000s, we collectively after football practice would go to Champs Pub in Burnaby and would watch games all the time. I could completely dial you through every nuance of roster and who did what back then. And I covered that team when I first got into the media. And and I know that when they set the American League record or the baseball record with 116 mm-hmm. wins, I was down there covering that team. It was an electric place to be. I still think Safeco or whatever it is now. What is oh, it called now? Beautiful ballpark. It's, it's as know. good as Verizon? any retro park still. So... I'm, you know, it, it, I, I was legitimately involved and invested back then, uh, not now, but happy to get on the bandwagon now. And anytime <laughs> they're close, I'm, I'm all in. So with that, with that, we are, are we going to do a side bet on which team win either wins yeah, the wild card if they play each other or which team gets in where we gonna have a side. Oh, there's bet? no way the blue Jays are playing the Mariners in the wild card. Okay. So which team are making it? So which team gets in? Are we going to have a bet? Are we having a side stake bet 2.0? Yeah. yeah. This is VanCast 2.0. Like maybe like some locks, something Seattle themed. Like we got it. It got to be seafood themed, right? All right. I'm not a big seafood guy, but I will have like the best piece of halibut (laughs) going if I win this bet. All right. Perfect. Yeah. Well, a, a nice piece of seafood for, for the other person. Good. Because folks in Toronto that are Blue Jay fans would have no idea. They would never have had good seafood by now. I mean, (laughs) heck, you could go to the Seattle baseball game and get get Ivers, which is better than anything you can find in Toronto. So (laughs) with that, I mean, we've almost done half the show. So on baseball, on baseball, <laughs> but it's a nice change for our listeners. Cause I got pretty and fired the, and up. The show's sponsored by the NBA. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, what a weird hockey podcast. This is yeah, This is good. This is good. 
Hey, listen, let's dive into what's about to happen with the Canucks because on September the 30th, we are a day away from the Canucks, from the NHL deadline to opt out. What is Travis Hammond going to do? Is it done? Uh, I don't think it's done. No, I don't think the club has a good indication of what's next, to be totally honest. And in asking around over the past day or two, you know, like there's a chance we'll have clarity this week. And that the opt-out will solve the issue. I tend to think it's the most likely outcome. I know I've told you this already, Farhan. But I just think the other options are either remote or so unappealing that I really struggle to see the player going through with them. On the other hand, you know, there are sort of quiet options, too, in terms of You know, things like if the player was injured or, you know, uh, anyway, there's a few other ways that this could play out. And so we may have clarity on Friday. I'm sure the club would love to, uh, but they may not. This may be a problem that lingers beyond this week, unfortunately. So be prepared for that. And the other thing that I sort of got a sense of while I was asking around, and I was surprised to hear it, was, um, well, not surprised, but I just hadn't realized it, was, you know, you can't underrate how agonizing this type of situation is for the player, right? Like Jim Benning went off on the media poking their nose in (laughs) to Ben Kuzma earlier this week. And while I think that was a little bit calculated, like while I think he was very happy to take an opportunity to defend you know, a player with whom the organization would prefer to cooperate (laughs) in terms of reaching a resolution over the next few days. I also think it was motivated in part by, you know, uh, something that a couple of sources impressed upon me the other day, which is just that it's, it's really tough. Like it's been really tough on the player and, you know, you or I might think it should be simple, like get dosed, play for your teammates, make money. But it's really not that straightforward for the person in the situation, like agonizing about compromising what they see, you know, as their principles, selfishly and incorrectly. But nonetheless, that's their perception of it, right? And so while I suspect the opt-out is the cleanest way forward and the most likely, like who knows? We should have a resolution by end of day Friday, but don't take that to the bank. Yeah, it's an interesting one because when you consider what he went through two years ago to opt out, you'd think you'd want to keep every form of protection possible. What are the factors that Hamannick's considering here? In terms of the, yeah, I mean, and not just I don't from, know. A, from I don't a, what insight. happens if you don't play, but it just seems so. It seems like such a no-brainer given what he's dealing with health-wise. It just seems like there's another layer to this that we're not quite understanding. There, there is for sure, and I don't understand it. So I won't speculate on it, sure, but no. it does seem, you know, it's, it's surprising. Well, and I don't think there's any question that considering the opt-out, right, and considering the way that last season played out um, with the Canucks and their COVID outbreak and the players' reaction to it and some of the anger within the locker room from veteran players directed toward Adam Gaudet, for example, right? Yep. Patient zero of the outbreak. 
I, I do think the cl- club didn't see this coming either, obviously, when they signed him to the two-year deal this summer. So, yeah, I mean, it's a very strange one. Yeah, no doubt. And now from the Canucks perspective, they're looking at what's next. And before we talk about how this might impact Hughes and Pedersen, and you hope those situations are coming to a head fairly quickly, but what about how they replace a guy like that? I mean, it's not as simple as moving Luke Shen up, is it? I mean, I know that we talked about this from a financial perspective earlier, and it seemed that that was the thing that made sense. Uh, or that if had they done that this offseason, financially, they'd be in a better place given the actual difference between those two players. But the depth Luke Shen provides as right D number four, you also then have to replace that. So where do you look? Well, I also think you're looking at Hamannick as a top four guy. Like this team had him slotted, probably top pair right D. Sure. I don't think you want to put Shen there. You know, like, Hamannick might not be much better than Shen, but in terms of the club's plans, like, he looms a lot larger. Uh, Shen is no replacement for him. And so, you know, I do think that's a tricky one. And also, I do think why, in the event that Hamannick was to change his mind here and just show up, you know, not that it wouldn't be a little complicated because of how the last 10 days have unfolded, but you know, club would love to have him. Like, make no mistake. And if they don't have him, they are going to have to replace him, and it isn't going to be simple. There may be some trade route options that you could find, especially once that money's freed up. Uh, but, you know, waiver wire, for sure. I, I would expect the Canucks to take a long, hard look. And not just expect. Like, the Canucks will take a long, hard look at defensive-minded right shot defenders that hit waivers between now and, you know, Tuesday, October 12th. But could there possibly be anybody available in that situation that's any better than Luke Shen? Maybe. I mean, there's some guys that could be if you give them opportunity and they hit. I mean, the model for this is Gustav Forsling, right? Who the Florida Panthers claimed off waivers and he became a top four mainstay for them. Ended up playing top pair for them with Mackenzie Weger in the playoffs. And, you know, he's a high-risk guy. Like, I don't think he's a true talent top pair defenseman. You know, he's a four or five, probably. But he's a good four. Yeah, I mean, especially to get him off waivers. Free bet. As good as it gets. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know that I see that guy. But that's also the trick. No one sees Gustav Forsling as Gustav Forsling until he's Gustav Forsling. That's why he's on waivers. So uh, there's some interesting bets that could emerge. There's some veteran D who are, you know, mobile, defense first. Uh, A guy like Chad Ruadil out of Pittsburgh, maybe if they decide to protect Friedman. So we'll see. Like, there's going to be some options, but they're not slam dunk, like clear Hamannuck replacements. They're, you know, bets you have to place with some long shot odds on them. On some levels, though, that's what Hamannuck was when you consider the circumstances that brought him to Vancouver a year ago to begin with, right? I mean, he's not necessarily who we view as a top pair defenseman. He just happens to fit with Quinn Hughes. Yeah, and that's the other part here is if you bump Shen up, I don't think you're going to play him in the top four. I don't think they're going to play Myers with Quinn Hughes. 
No. We know they want to play Ekman Larson with Pullman, but if you lose Hamannick and you don't want to play Myers with Hughes, you kind of have to go Hughes Pullman, Ekman Larson Myers, and now you're playing Myers in shutdown minutes, which no one wants to see. So could you play Shane with Ekman Larson? I don't think so. Who's going to skate? Yeah, like, no, fair enough. There's no, there's not enough mobility there. So yeah, no. I mean, I think it's a, it's a tough fit, a really tough fit. And I do think you do kind of need to find like a right defender that you're comfortable either playing in matchup minutes with Ekman Larson or being the Hughes caddy. And boy, I don't think that's an easy piece to find on the waiver wire, and may necessitate you know, a deal of some kind. Well, we'll see how good their pro scout departing is or department is, I should say in the next <laughs> week or so here, because who would have thought we would have been in this situation this close to the season where despite two young stars, not being with contracts, we're more concerned with a guy that's potentially a bottom pair defenseman that's playing in your top pair. And neither one of them are here right now. Yeah. Well, and seems to me to be a bit of a holding pattern. You know, both sides, I think, at this point in the process, and this is based on what I'm hearing around the industry, conversations with people close to the situation, you know, both sides believe they've gone as far as they can here. Like, they've they've given. And so you get to this point where there remains a gulf, like a fundamental valuation disagreement. And anytime there's been progress on it, it changes what works for the other player, right? Sure. Like, which complicates things too. So I know the sides plan to touch base again a bit later today. And that while it's not close, like it's not far either. You know, like it's one of those things where it can just change with a phone call. So, you know, be a little bit careful reading too much into people saying they're far apart. There's a gulf, there's a valuation disagreement, and it's going to take one side to make the first move to close that gap. And so far, neither has blinked. But we're also probably another week to 10 days out from white knuckle territory in terms of being really concerned. And we'll, we'll sort of see how this standoff ends. But I, I won't be stunned if a deal gets done quick. And I won't be stunned if it drags on for another 10 days where I will start to be surprised, I think, is if it looks like the Canucks might really start the season without either player, you know, not just in the lineup on opening night, but like around the team with their deals done. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. A guy that's stressing right now and might need to make that call is Travis Green. Because you heard him yesterday saying, we'll worry about those guys when they get here, if they get here. And you know that Travis parses every word. That wasn't said just because. It wasn't a flippant comment. No. You're right. It wasn't. Yeah, I liked it. <laughs> but who's he sending the message to? Those players, his team, or management? I think everybody. He's like, God, screw it out. <laughs> that would be my read on it. Does he really think there's a chance? That they miss time? That they miss actual games. No, but if you think about who's the, like, sorry, he might, but think about it this way. Who's the guy that has to be prepared for it? It's him. Yeah, it gets dumped in his lap. It Like, he, no matter what else goes down, no matter who's signed and who's in the lineup, you know, on game one, on October 13th, there's going to be reaction shots of him behind the bench you know, grimacing at his team's performance with or without his best players. So, you know, he's probably the guy other than maybe like a couple of the front office folks in the Canucks uh, organization who like deal with like cap mechanics <laughs> that are most focused on the possibility that they might not be here. Yeah. And, and how much is the Hamannick situation because I think there's two schools of thought in terms of how this actually impacts that deal that some believe that Pat Brisson and the players are waiting for that to happen I mean I'm sure the players aren't literally waiting Quinn Hughes would probably love to have Hamannick playing with him rather than profiting off his absence financially but I think there's there are two schools of thoughts here there's a simplistic version that feels once they go there's three million dollars now available but you've also got to replace that player and there'll probably be some debate on the part of their representatives and how much should be spent to replace that player versus what should be given. And there's others who simply believe that the organization doesn't want to pay more, that they've got things slotted based on a per-term situation, that this is what we'll pay based on this many years and so on, and not give that money completely, $1.5 million to each player on whatever term the owner or the, the agent chooses. Well, if you're the team, you have to be saying that as you wait for the outcome, Right. So we'll see. I mean, there's no question that once you open up that three million, like I don't think it's immediately one five for you, one five for you. Let's get these done. You know, like that would look like an overpayment from the team perspective. That's not that's not how this ends. But does that extra three million create some of the uh, like lubrication, like problem solving lubrication you need? to bridge the gap that remains between these two sides that are, you know, having a staring contest and an impasse. I, I, I think that's possible. Wow. You know, and from an from a organizational perspective, you talk about what they value this at, but also the look associated and how it affects your internal salary cap. Like if you're Jim Benning, how difficult is this? Because if you wind up paying more based on Hamannick leaving and you don't have that I don't want to call it an excuse, but essentially it is that we just don't have the money to give you. How tough is that in the eyes of ownership, in the eyes of 
your long-term cap perspective, all of it. Like this is a big loss for Jim Benning if he has to go this way. Well, I just get a good outcome. You know, just get a good outcome. Like the fact is, is that these guys should have been signed 12 months ago, right? Like these contracts will dictate a decade worth of history for the Vancouver Canucks. Like this will shape not just this season, but the medium and long-term future of this franchise. But you don't overpay for that, do you? I mean, it's not about overpaying for it so much as it's having certainty, right? And, like, this is the one part of where this situation's at, too, that I think is reflective of what the club endured after leaving the bubble with the misery that was 2021 and the abrupt change in direction in terms of what the club could spend and what the priorities were. And, you know, you you sign guys, young guys, after success in the bubble – Right. And it's like they're eager to be part of something. You get a better contract outcome in that situation. But you cut costs, you spend a season not giving a flying F about winning, you know, and you have this COVID outbreak. You lose all the veteran players that they respect on and on down the line. And now you get to a point where, you know, you've improved your team, but you're out of money for them. Well, you know. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's but what you're telling me is out. that they basically are in the same situation they were in three and four years ago when they were giving ridiculous term to players who had no business getting four year contracts, but they knew they had to do that because that's where they were as an organization and had to overpay or overterm in order to get even the most fringe player to consider coming to Vancouver. And now you're saying they're essentially having to do the same for their own guys. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that's a factor here. I really do. And that's, you know, that's unfortunate. Like, that should be upsetting for Canucks fans. But the bill comes due. Whether or not you're pinching pennies or not, the bill comes due. And I do think, uh, you know, one of the factors here is that it has. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's not to say that the Canucks won't, you know, hold steady here. And get a good outcome. But, you know, I do think the lack of prioritization in terms of these deals not being done, the finite cap space left on the table, you know, the the fringe historic level of performance that both of these players hit over their entry-level deals, combined, however, with the fact that the club didn't perform well and neither did they in their platform seasons, you know, all of that makes this pretty complicated. And has created a gap in valuation between player and organization, uh, a gap that for now, you know, remains in the space between which Pat Brisson and CAA and Jim Benning and the Canucks are still having a staring contest. Well, if the thought was that once camp began, the player would then shift on the organize or the pressure, I should say, would shift on the organization to get this done. The second Travis Hamanick opts out, if in fact that does happen and that cash is available, that pressure is going to ratchet up that much more. But um, we spent <laughs> Hamanick. The Hamanick situation has kind of reduced the pressure on the organization because it's given the market something else to speculate and obsess over, and you know, like in some ways, um, you know, maybe the uncertainty has 
cause talks to drag a bit? Maybe. Maybe. I don't think that's true, but it's possible. The but from a fan perspective, is, once it happens, there's no other dominoes left to fall. You well, have more money, local you have to get it done. Don't you think from a local perspective, the Hamannick story has just overshadowed the, the last, since can't begin, Yes, it has. Yeah. yeah. And, and I know that Benning was critical in Kuz's column, but it's completely ridiculous and naive for him to think that we wouldn't pry and want to report on this story, given the fact that it was Benning himself that said, Hamannick is here and we will be 100% vaccinated. That was in the same press conference. Seconds apart, like there was a report earlier that day before Benning spoke that Hamannick did not plan to take part, whether that day or whatever the situation would be or the timeline would be. He said he's here, basically shrugged and implied, I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's fine. And then he doesn't show up to practice for him to say that. What are you prying for? Are you kidding? You set us up for that. When you want context in terms of how we as a media dealt with the COVID crisis this team dealt with last year, we could not have been more respectful of the player's health, the privacy, and all of it. We could not have handled it more respectfully than we did collectively in terms of how we talked about names, who was dealing with what, all of it. So this is on him in terms of why we're getting involved. And you're right, as a result of his comments day one, instead of a lack of transparency, it has taken over the story. It has overshadowed those two young players. Well, yeah, and the lack of transparency side of this is where it's cogent for me in terms of, you know, even with the COVID outbreak, they then barred media from like three practices, including ones that were happening like 24 hours out from a nationally broadcast game, that's ridiculous. There's no there's no justification for that. The other side of this, though, for me anyway, is that, you know, I think this is such a fluid situation. Like, we reported, Dolly Wall and I, on the Monday before Jim spoke on Wednesday to open camp, that something had moved and that the Canucks were confident that they'd be able to say, we will be 100% vaccinated by the start of the regular season on Wednesday. They then did that, despite... Irfan Gaffar's report. And I think something changed. Like, I think something changed. I think this has been that agonizing for the player that things have waffled. And so, you know, that brings us to where we are. The lack of transparency thing I buy, like, even the framing that this is a personal matter, considering everything this market knows and all the sympathy that it has for Hamannick's family situation you know, feels manipulative to me, right? Like there is something I don't like about that. I have a distaste for that, especially when it's seized on by the worst actors to be like, the media is speculating, lying, like, whoa. But um, all of that said, you know, I, I take your point. I, I see it. I agree to some extent. But I also have some sympathy for the club considering the way that the situation has unfolded as a saga and the fact that at the moment anyway, you know, I took Benning's comments to Coos with a heaping grain of salt because I just think he was very happy to be seen defending a player's honor in this circumstance, especially as the club awaits and is to some extent at the mercy of his decision on how to move forward. Let's get into the rest of the roster and some of what Travis said while we've still got a bit of time here. And 
He talked about the fact that this is going to be a, a much more veteran roster. We saw 21 skaters and two goaltenders in practice, got our first look at the power play. But, you know, there were some, there weren't a lot of questions, right? There were a few in terms of the players that we saw, but by and large, okay, we didn't see Jonah Gadjevich. We didn't see Will Lockwood. We didn't see Klimovich. But there weren't any huge names that we fully expected unless they wanted to expand from that 21 number, but they needed enough in that B group to skate as well. But from Travis Green's perspective, we're not sitting at 21. We're actually sitting at 27 because there's six players that aren't here. So this is probably where I should be. And it gives me a better chance to look at some of these other guys in a more deeper, meaningful way. Fair? Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I think the way that he has to be thinking about it, though, is like, if no one shows up, right? If, if they're here, right? If no one shows up, what do I do? And I think this is like a first draft of the 23 men in the event that the six absent players, none of them return. Now, we know Justin Bailey will return. Um, I don't think we know about the other five. So, you know, I, I read a lot into the players that were included. And I think you can. And I think there's a ton of really fascinating takeaways. Like, Phil DiGiuseppe in the top nine, clearly he's separated himself. I don't think Travis is making any secret of that at this point either in his comments to the media. Although it is obvious if you've been paying attention to, sure. the, to the performances and scrimmages and practice. Um, Ole Olevi... With Kyle Burroughs, pretty clearly the third man in that three-horse race, right? Like, they're not being polite about it at this point. It's explicit. And, you know, I don't think Rathbone's necessarily got that spot locked down ahead of Brad Hunt yet. I know people really want him to, but, you know, if Quinn Hughes returns, I, I, I don't, I won't be surprised by a Hunt-Myers third pair. Like, I really won't. And... We'll see how Hunt performs here, but I think they're going to give both guys an equal shot. And it's pretty clear to me that they're set up to do so based on the way they ran the power play, um, you know, based on the fact that both are playing with you know, pretty, like, pretty veteran guys, like guys we expect to be in the lineup at this point. Um, and then I do think that Lockwood and Gadjevich uh, and the like are a tier below. Like, I think they're likely to be on the outside looking in based on their non-inclusion in that main group on Wednesday. So I think there was a fair bit of grist, like a fair bit of uh, meat on that bone that we might chew. And, you know, I chewed it at length in an article at The Athletic yesterday, and um, I think quite rightly, like I think the team showed us a lot about how they're thinking about this group and the pecking order uh, on Wednesday. Did you see enough from Dowling to separate him from those other three forwards that we just mentioned? Uh, yeah, I think so, especially because he's a center and they're going to need him to kill penalties. Like, I, I think that penalty-killing utility is going to fundamentally shape the depth players that the club includes, especially on that fourth-line role. It's like, it's not only why I think Dowling has an edge over Gadjevich and Lockwood, but also because he can play center and kill penalties. I think he has uh, an edge over Nick Patan, who you know, has been playing with, like, top players all throughout camp. So, you know, we'll see where this ends up. But, yeah, I mean, I think Dowling has shown pretty well. I think Dowling's shown better than the likes of Highmore and Chason and McEwen, you know, three guys who I sort of have circled as players that, you know, I probably wouldn't have 
um, given the inside track to over Gadjevich based purely on merit-based performance that we've seen over the course of the past week. So again, it was our first chance to look at the special teams yesterday, and you asked Travis about penalty kill deployment and how that'll factor in, especially as it relates to defensemen on the left side and right side and how comfortable he is there. So I'll take you through <laughs> it, and his answer, answer was, no, I know, but your answer was so long, you pretty much answered it. He just didn't acknowledge it. Uh, yeah. Sorry, the, the question, it was perfect. You set it up right there. He looked at you. He gave you the look. He just didn't want to admit it. But yeah. we'll go through the forward pairs that we saw and the defense pairs yesterday in practice. Uh, the three forward pairs, Dickinson, DiGiuseppe, Dowling, and Highmore, to your point about his penalty kill utility. Pod Colson, which we know he can do that and has done that at different levels, but interesting to see he, along with McEwen, getting a look there uh, at this stage of his career. he won't kill penalties. He won't. Like, Green was pretty explicit about it. Yeah. And then defensively, you've got Myers with uh, Burroughs and Yule Levy rotating in there, and then Shen and Poolman. And so you've got all your right side D populating your defensive <laughs> pairs in the PK because, as you talked about earlier, there just aren't enough guys that can do that. Yeah. Although OEL will jump in, right? Yeah. Like OEL will be one of the lefty penalty killers. And then it looks like one of Myers or Shen will play their offside and they'll flesh it out with the other two righties. So. I mean, yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me that you're going to go something like OEL and Shen or Pullman as your first, you know, first option when the PK shift starts, and then Myers and the other one of Pullman or Shen, uh, you know, when the, when, as a secondary, like when they, when they change. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's basically set unless they add an RD. I remember last year when there were times when it seemed like Alex Edler never got off on a given PK. Could you imagine yeah, that happening to OEL? This year. Yeah, it's going to be OEL for sure. Wow. And that yes. will affect other aspects of his game, playing those hard minutes. Totally will. And might lead to some, you know, certainly heightens the injury risk, right? So, yeah, no, it's not ideal, man. And I think when you look up and down and look at this club's penalty killing options, and then look at what it causes in terms of how the club has to build their fourth line. You know, like, I don't think it's unfair to say that it's a roster construction issue. Like, one that will have to be patched over. Um, they just don't have that, like, veteran 2 or 3C. I mean, they, they have Dickinson. So it's really that, you know, Horvat can't kill for some reason. I don't know why, but it just has never worked for him. And they don't really have that like 30 point two way winger. Who's a PK ace. Like a lot of teams have that guy and the Canucks just don't. So, you know, that sort of leaves the burden on the bottom end of your roster and changes what you're able to do with your fourth line. Like I do think it's a big reason why guys like Gadjevich and Lockwood, faced a pretty significant uphill climb and despite showing as well as they could have i think uh you know have ended up outside the main group and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free you see this a family watching baseball on direct tv with no satellite dish in sight let's heckle them you call that changing the channel choke up on the remote buddy i hope getting all these games on direct tv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds direct tv has the most mlb games visit directtv.com
Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Gadjevich, you know, as much as fans in this market are clamoring for the Mariners to get into the playoffs, they're also clamoring for Jonah Gadjevich to get some run with this team. They wanted to see it last year. We've seen a player that's improved his skating, that's taken a bit of a step. We talked about it after the last exhibition game, but you said at the time that the gap is just too big. What does he need to do to get some runner at this stage? Is it just a case of someone's going to need to get hurt to give him an opportunity? I think the, yeah. Well, the bigger concern from my view is does his profile entice one of those rebuilding teams like a Buffalo or Detroit to hazard a waiver claim and see what he's got? Because when you look at the profile, you know, he's 22, he'll be 23 in October, uh, World Juniors, played for Canada, second-round pick, big AHL counting stats last year, just transformed his body and significantly addressed the weakest part of his game in terms of his speed. I mean, that's a pretty intriguing profile. Like, you don't get a lot of chances to get a player like that for free, necessarily. So my, my concern, I guess, is does he get a chance to play with real top nine caliber line mates before being risked on waivers. Because I think he's got it. He's performed well enough, and the club just has to see it. Um, but I don't know that they will. Like, I, I don't know where they're at with it in terms of, you know, I, I think he'll get a game, but I don't know that he'll get a game in the top nine. And I think that would be an error. Yeah, I tend to as well. And look, I, I wasn't necessarily loath to what happened with Cole Lind. You know, I think they gave him enough run and there just wasn't a lot there. And in this case, I just don't think they did because of their concerns, which the coach admitted, yeah, he seems to have addressed this offseason. So you hate to lose that type of package when he can be such a useful player if if he gets the opportunity and is able to take advantage of it. So I think he set himself up to have that opportunity to be the next guy to not necessarily put the coaches in a situation where they're completely panicking at the thought of playing him. To your point though, Farhan from last podcast, remember like we're looking for reasons to be optimistic about pod Colson, right? How much hype would there be in this market right now? If pod Colson had had the training camp and preseason debut that, that Gadjevich did. Oh my God. Right. Like, can you imagine Market would be losing it. Um, you know, for me, there's a lot of players that were in that main group, like at least four, that I think Gadjevich has pretty handily outperformed uh, over the course of camp and in the preseason. And, you know, he's done it at the bottom end of the lineup. He's done it in scrimmage matchups that are mostly HL guys. So I'm not saying that the Canucks are even wrong to be harboring some skepticism or having him behind some guys who maybe have more PK utility or NHL experience or what have you. But I do want to see what can he do against like real NHL competition in a preseason game with some real NHL caliber line mates. And I do think he's at least played well enough to earn that. And I think he's a big enough waiver risk which, you know, less than 50%. Like, I'm not saying he's likely to get claimed or a slam dunk, but he's a big enough waiver risk and he's performed well enough that I just, I think you have to see it. And and I think it would be, I won't say something as hard as malpractice, 
but suboptimal. It would be suboptimal if they declined to take that opportunity. Yeah, I agree with you. And before we go, I want to ask you quickly about Brandon Sutter. Like, that's the one situation that's gone so under the radar. We know that Tyler Mott is here. It's just a case of time, and he won't start the regular season, but they've given us an indication. Justin Bailey should be here any day now after testing positive for COVID and having to stay in Buffalo a little bit longer. But in the case of Brandon Sutter... They're saying nothing beyond fatigue. Now, we're not in the regular season where you're not wanting to give up a competitive advantage while disclosing injuries. We're in the preseason here. I don't know if it thinks they if they think it affects them organizationally uh, by not telling anybody what he's got. What's he got? What's going on here? I, I don't know explicitly. I, clearly, it's serious enough that he hasn't been seen. Like he hasn't. He's not on the ice late either you know, getting work in, um, nope. there's something seriously up. And at this point, it doesn't feel likely that he's going to play to open the air, right? It's It feels a lot like the Jonathan Taves situation a year ago in Chicago, where it was all oh, fatigue yeah. type symptoms and you not much not. was being said. And, you know, that turned into a pretty significant thing for, for that year. And fortunately, he's in a better place. But it, it just feels like that. And I'm not speculating on the injury, but just the cloak and dagger of it um, and, and just saying it's just fatigue, you, you hope it's yeah. nothing like that. At this point, it's hard to imagine it's not complicated, right? No, like it's clearly complicated. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get to the bottom of it. Sutter himself, uh, you know, pretty transparent guy. Like, I think he'll talk about this when he's ready and when it's clear. Um, I don't, my guess is that it's not even clear yet and that they're still working through that. So hopefully we'll get an update in the days ahead. But at this point, it's just hard to imagine him appearing suddenly, ramping up quickly and playing, you know, in less than two weeks. Uh, this feels like something where the Canucks are going to need to play a guy like Dowling or a guy like Highmore or, you know, Miller will stay at center. Like they're going to need to address this in terms of, you know, finding guys to play in his set. And before I let you get on a rant about your thoughts on JT Miller at center, I think we better wrap up this episode of the <laughs> VanCast. The next time we do this, I will have already gone to Boston and back and watched Tom Brady take on his former team. So that should be a lot of fun. Oh, wow. That will be a lot of fun. I, uh, I'm, I've got the Tampa Bay defense and I'm facing Tom Brady this week in my fantasy matchup. So give me like snow. Like I want like a, a, a road. <laughs> Weather's going to be good in Boston. Uh, I want I want a bad Tom Brady performance in a defensive slugfest in which the Bucks defense scores like three touchdowns off pick sixes. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out who's got the advantage in this one, as far as Tom Brady knowing Bill Belichick better or Bill Belichick knowing Tom Brady better in terms of how to defend or attack one another. Well, uh, Tom that, Brady has won this divorce. No question. Right? Like by a lot, by a lot. Yeah. Like Bill Belichick is, you know, like uh, Milhouse's dad. Like he's trying to borrow <laughs> a feeling from, from Tom Brady at this point. Um, but much like you won the Patterson this, divorce. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think I've done very well 
in the Patterson divorce, to be totally honest with you. I, I mean, you're a trophy wife in comparison with Andrew Wadden. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's fair. I'll give you that. Yeah. The, uh, the Brady Belichick thing, though, Brady has so clearly battered Belichick in the divorce that you just know that Belichick has more stakes on this. You and know? through all of that, like the I'm not sure for him. I'm not sure Belichick would have done it differently. And I'm not sure he was wrong in the decision he made because who among us would have predicted that Tom Brady would have been even better at that age. But I mean, I, come on. He's Tom Brady. Still, we're seeing that now after he won again. But we, you he, know, the way he left he that last game. He microwaved a Super Bowl team the way you or I microwave a burrito. <laughs> it's incredible. And um, yeah. you're right. I, I mean, Belichick might not have been wrong, and he would never admit that he was anyway. But it's nice to see. It's nice to see him, like, have to eat one. Like, genuinely, screw that guy. Speaking of eating one, I'm really looking forward to eating my seafood. But before we go there, if you are interested <laughs> in other podcasts at The Athletic, check out Joel Quinville. The head coach of the Florida Panthers who spoke with Ian Mendez and Haley Sullivan, or Salvin, I should say, this week on the Athletic Hockey Show. Marcus Foligno is Michael Russo's guest on this week's edition of Straight from the Source. And John Bucci-Gross of ESPN joins Craig Custance and Sean Gentili on the Athletic Hockey Show USA this week at the Athletic. And once again, we would like to thank you for listening to the VanCast, which happened to be a baseball show for the first 10 or 12 minutes. <laughs> and then Please. a football show for the last five. There you go. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to leave a rating and review. Subscribe to The Athletic Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts to get all the bonus content from our entire network. Start with a 30-day free trial, then just 99 cents a month after that. And right now, annual subscriptions to The Athletic are 50% off when you visit theathletic.com slash vancast. I'm going to have to look up seafood restaurants so I can make sure I pick the best. Best black and salmon, maybe. Yeah, blue blue water cafe like nothing the... blue. Nothing blue is going to win this week. It's going to be the Mariners ahead of the Blue Jays at the end of the week. Book uh, it. No chance. No chance. Book it. It's going to be and either Yankees, Red Sox, or Red Sox, Blue Jays, and that's that is what it is. I am on the ABB train. Anything but Blue Jays. <laughs> and with that, thank you for listening. We will be back next week to break down the Tampa Bay game against New England. Oh, no, wait. Where the Canucks are <laughs> to at. To break down Talking. the Mariners choking in the series against the Angels. No chance. We're talking about <laughs> Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson coming back to Vancouver. Clarity on the Travis Hamanick situation. That and more. Thanks for listening.